Uh, we are looking at a challenging subject today. Uh, you'll know this is not, we're, we're not one of those churches that tell them brimstone and always talking about this. Uh, in fact, it's fairly rare that we have these really, really complicated ones. But today, we are looking at the topic of hell. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the famed maker of the whole area of Narnia, who grew up as an atheist and came to faith later in life, uh, famously once said that there is no doctrine which I would more willingly, willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. Uh, it's a topic that is difficult at the best of times, that, that kind of just sits heavily within Christianity. Uh, we continue today on our series looking at a Christian worldview. Uh, and so we've looked at origins, uh, we've looked at meaning, we've looked at morality, and we've looked at destiny. And so that's where we're moving to today, is we're going to be looking at destiny. What is it, as we're thinking about a Christian worldview, what is it that we know from God? And so the premise of this series is, if we could boil everything down back to the basics, what are those key essential aspects of understanding who God is uh, and what it means to say that we have a Christian worldview? So as we went through origins, we looked at creation stories and the different views around that. We looked at sin entering the world and at the idea of the Trinity and where that sits when we looked at meaning, we talked about the ideas behind work and worship that we see in the very beginning that God created us to work and that work is meant to be a rhythm of worship. But obviously that was distorted as sin entered the world. As we got to morality, we looked at the idea of the law and the purpose of the law was never to save but to point towards the need for a saviour and that because of Jesus, we can live in relationship with God. And so as we follow Jesus, it's all about that relationship. And so now we come to destiny. And what is it that the Bible teaches about destiny? Uh, well, there's a, a famous person by the name of St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine once said this, and this is an important thing, is we're thinking about topics that are difficult that don't sit comfortably. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel that you believe, but yourself. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. If everything that we believe has to sit comfortably, has to all make sense, has to all line up with our way of thinking, then it's actually about aligning the Gospel with ourselves, not aligning ourselves with the Gospel. Uh, another person, Chris Brossett, uh, he said this, Ultimately... Hell is what hell is, regardless of what we believe. Our statements about hell, right or wrong, cannot change hell, even if they can change how we feel. Uh, ultimately, when we're looking at Scripture, when we're looking at different ideas and uh, you know, things of belief within it, it's not about it being the way that we can sort of answer everything and get it all boiled down. It's trying to discover what does the Bible say? What does God actually teach us 
And so what I'm going to do today is very similar to how I approach creation. There are so many views about how the world may have been created. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to cover the top three ideas about hell. What are the different views? What are the different ways that people would think about and approach hell? Uh, there are three main views. There's lots of minor views and there's some slight caveats and you know, different ways of approaching each of these three. But there are predominantly three views on what hell could be. Uh, the first one is eternal conscious torment. You would have likely heard of it before. It's a place of perpetual conscious torment, both physical and spiritual. Uh, so the idea behind this one uh, is that it's, it is perpetual, it's forever, it's eternal, it's not ending. And it's conscious that you're, that you're actually, you're awake, you can experience it, you can feel it. And it's torment. It's awful. It's horrendous. And you experience it physically and you experience it spiritually. And it's really uncomfortable. Uh, but this view, I, I have to be, give it its fair point. This view is the orthodox view and has been the orthodox view for the vast majority of time. It's the traditional view of the vast majority of Christians for the vast majority of Christian history. Uh, this is if you were to take any random Christian from the time of Jesus till today and you were to go by chance, ask them what is their view of hell, almost certainly this is the view that would be expressed because it has been and continues to be the traditional orthodox view of what the Bible teaches. So what are some of the parts of the Bible that speak to this? Well, one of them is found in Isaiah. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24 says this. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loath loathsome to all mankind. Uh, another one in Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 to 11 says this. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which was poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Uh, so these two scriptures uh, predominantly speak to this idea that the people who experience hell experience the reality of it forever. That they're in a place where they actually experience the pain and the heartache of being separated from God. Uh, and, and anywhere where the view of eternal conscious torment is expressed throughout the Bible, it's always expressed in ways that make it a real, tangible experience. And they're all scriptures that are really tough to read. Really tough. Uh, a second view about what is hell uh, is a view called annihilationism, or in some cases it's called conditional <laughs> Immortality. So there's a condition on you being immortally around. And so this is the belief 
that unbelievers will not experience an eternity of suffering in hell, but will instead be extinguished or destroyed. Uh, so this is the view that at the end of times, uh, those who have followed Jesus will go off into an eternity in the presence of God, and those who rejected God will simply cease to exist. They will be destroyed. Uh, so one of the things about this uh, is the passage is talking about an eternal thing, uh, understood as meaning permanent, not unending. So there are some scriptures that talk about hell being eternal. And so that makes it seem like hell is forever. For, for those who subscribe to annihilationism, they would suggest that the eternal aspect is that it's a permanent thing, that you are permanently destroyed and therefore the punishment of hell is an eternal punishment because you cease to exist. Uh, some of the scriptures that are used to back this on, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19 says this, For as I have often told you before now, I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Uh, so this is Paul writing to the people in Philippi, and he uses the word their destruction. Uh, so those who would hold to annihilation view uh, would suggest that basically what happens is your destiny, if you don't follow Jesus, is that you will be destroyed. You will cease to exist at the end of time. Uh, another one is the book of James, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. It says this, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So in this verse, it's compared between that there's either those who are saved and there are those who are destroyed. And so those who would hold to the view of annihilationism would suggest that James is saying here, that's the two options. You're either saved or you're destroyed. Uh, to be fair, those who would hold to an eternal conscious torment would say that destroy is just another word for eternal pain, that you are eternally destroyed. And so it's an ongoing destruction, whereas annihilation would suggest that so you are just destroyed and you cease to exist. Another one in 2 Peter verses, chapter 3, verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is probably one of the verses which would be suggested as being clearest. But let me be fair. Every view we're looking at today has its proof texts. Every view we're looking at has some scriptures that seem to say really clearly that view. And so part of the challenge of understanding hell is actually you've got to read through all of the passages and try and piece together a picture of what is most accurate. Uh, but this would be one of the main ones used because it talks about the destruction of the ungodly. Uh, the third common view uh, is the view of universalism. Now, I say common simply because it has been present since the time of Jesus. So this view, the belief that all humankind will eventually be saved. And there have been people who have held to this view ever since the time of Jesus, but they have always been in the minority and it's always been a significant minority. Uh, so those who would hold to this one, have, would hold to it as a minority view. It's been a minority view. Uh, 
but it has always existed. So I've included this one here because it has had subscribers throughout the whole, whole of history. There are some views that are coming out about hell today, which are actually fairly modern constructions. They haven't really been believed throughout the history of the church. These three views have all had people that have held to it since the beginning, since Jesus was on the scene. Uh, some of the verses that are used to justify the view of universalism, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 18 says this, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So again, the view and the reason universalism comes into play here is the use of the word all, that all are justified. And so they would argue that what Paul is saying here in his letter to the Romans is that just as one act led to all people being condemned because of sin, because of Jesus' death on the cross, all people can expect to be saved. Uh, another one would be Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, and it says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So again, it's that use of the word all things, that through Jesus' death, all things are reconciled. And so those who would hold to the view of universalism, they would point to these scriptures as being proof texts that say that they're right. Well, I will in some way show my cards that I don't subscribe to universalism. I actually don't think it's an accurate portrayal. It's definitely the one that I want to be true. I would love it if that were the case. The challenge that universalism and holding to that view has is there are too many other scriptures that are really hard to explain away uh, that talk about a separation and that talk about there not being a common destiny for all people. It's harder to split eternal conscious torment and annihilationism because then it's a matter of looking at words and using words in different ways. Uh, but universalism, it's really challenging to actually look at it when you look at the broader construction of the rest of Scripture. Uh, so what are some other ways, other lenses we might think through that help us to determine what we actually think is accurate? So one of the ones I've talked about before is there were, in the early days of the Christian faith, a whole group of churches that got together and wrestled over these things. And so a number of creeds were created. And the idea behind the creeds was to try and determine what are the essential aspects of the faith. Like what are the key things that we have to hold to and believe? And, and what we sing one song every now and then called The Creed. You know, this I believe, and it goes through a list of things, and it's predominantly views about Jesus and the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So what do the creeds have to say about hell? When, when they were talking as a church about what are the essentials, what did they decide was essential about the topic of hell? Well, actually, only one of the creeds even talks about hell. Only one of the creeds has any reference, and that's the Apostles' Creed. But even the Apostles' Creed, when it mentions hell, it actually mentions it in the context of simply confirming that Jesus literally died. Uh, one of the early things that was being taught by some churches that were in error is they were teaching that Jesus didn't actually die. He kind of metaphorically died, but didn't actually die. And so one of the ways that the Apostles' Creed gets around this is it talks about Jesus descending into hell. 
And that was a phrase that was used to basically express he actually died. But it gives no context to what hell might be from an eternal perspective. Other than that, when they were defining what needed to be in the creeds, they didn't actually feel that they had to be extraordinarily clear about how hell is defined. So another way that we might look, another lens that we might look through, uh, is as a church, we have a statement of belief. Uh, now, we are a Baptist church. If you don't know that, it's not specifically in our name. It's not that we hide it. It's just that we're more focused on being a community church. But we hold to the Baptist churches of Western Australia's statement of faith. And so the statement of faith of Western Australian Baptist churches uh, simply has this. While unbelievers will suffer the eternal punishment of exclusion from his presence. So when, when Baptists and WA were trying to nut down and define what they thought was an accurate portrayal of the New Testament scriptures and of the whole Bible, the phrase they've put in is that, well, unbelievers, so there are believers and unbelievers, well, unbelievers will suffer the eternal punishment of exclusion from his presence. Uh, so you could, uh, you could accurately hold to either an eternal conscious torment or an annihilation view, uh, and you would be able to line up with what, as a church, we have as our statement of faith. Probably universalism wouldn't tick that box, because obviously universalism believes that all people are saved. Uh, but other than that, both of those two views would fit within the partnership agreement to be able to call this church home. But the lens, I think, is most important. And the lens that we have to spend most time wrestling with is what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Now, we often paint Jesus as the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, uh, this beautiful, and he was all about love, which was very true. And he's healing people and he's saving people and he's this lovely person. If you talk to almost anyone in culture, not all, but most people, they will look at Jesus and go, oh, he's a great guy. It's a pity those Christians aren't more like Jesus. Okay, there's probably some truth to that in many ways. But it's because in most cases, our culture has actually robbed Jesus of any of his difficulty, any of the challenge. They, they look at the scriptures that say nice things. But Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. If you were to take all of the scripture in the New Testament that covers the topic of hell, the list of Jesus' statements on hell is close to twice as long as any other scriptures. And you might have noticed, I don't know if you picked it up before, when I was using our scriptures for the different views, I didn't use any of Jesus' views at that point. I only used some of the others because I wanted to be able to come to it and just look at it through the lens of what Jesus said. Now, I'm only going to take two or three uh, today. There's, I think, about 15 or 20 different times that Jesus actually spoke on the topic of hell. Uh, it's something that he's actually quite, and it's very consistent. You look across the Gospels and you look across all the places that Jesus talks about hell, it's actually fairly clear, not necessarily about which view would be right, but that he has a very clear idea of what hell is. So the first one we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 25. I'm just going to look at verses 32 and 33. Or oh, This is Jesus talking about what will happen at the end of times, what will happen when he returns. At all the nations will be gathered before him, the Son of Man. And he will separate the people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so Jesus, when he's talking about the future times when he, the Son of Man, would return, he makes it clear that there will be a separation. And there will be those who are sent to be with him in eternity, and there will be those who actually are not. Uh, in Matthew, a bit further on in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, it says this, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Uh, those who hold to an eternal conscious torment view of hell would suggest that this verse is one of the key reasons why they subscribe to it. Because it compares the idea of eternal life with eternal punishment. And so they would argue that that means that just as the experience of life is eternal, so would be the experience of punishment. Those who hold to an annihilationist view would say that the obviously eternal life is experienced eternally and that the punishment is eternal because you are eternally destroyed. There's no coming back. There's no future resurrection. Uh, there, there's no being able to be restored and coming back to life and finding your way to heaven. It simply is the end of your existence. And so that's how those two views would actually speak to that. Uh, another place where Jesus talks about it is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, Jesus, he's not, this is not metaphorical language. This was not him painting a picture or telling a parable. This was Jesus answering questions and talking directly about what hell is and about what people who follow him or what those who are in our world might need to be aware of. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Though un incredibly uncomfortable to believe, hell clearly exists. And it is incredibly uncomfortable. I wish I didn't have to preach this message. I, I like to do light and fluffy and fun and, and joyous sort of messages. But I can't read through the New Testament scriptures and pretend that this isn't there. So at a minimum, if you want to boil down to what at a minimum do I think the scriptures teach? There are three things that I think you could say at a minimum. First one is hell is real. Second one, hell is eternal. But the last one is most important. Hell is avoidable. It is not God's desire for anyone to go to hell. Hell, it's, it's not anything joyous. There's nothing good about the reality of hell existing. So whether you hold to the eternal conscious torment view or whether you hold to annihilationism, I, I would suggest that they are the most biblically accurate. And as much as I, if I was to say what I want to be true, I would like annihilation to be true. If I got to choose, if it was up to me, 
And it had to be that hell existed, which I think the scripture teaches as clear. I would absolutely choose annihilationism. But then I'm doing the very thing that St. Augustine or that C.S. Lewis, so C.S. Lewis, you know, I, if I could get rid of it, I would. And then St. Augustine, when he said that it's not about you choosing what the gospels say. If you've got to make it all fit comfortably, then it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. And the reality is eternal conscious torment has been the orthodox view and it's been held by the majority for the majority of the church's existence. I would be comfortable with you believing, and not that's my choice what you believe, but in terms of saying, uh, if you're going to hold a Christian worldview, I do think both of those arguments can be made from the scriptures. The challenge, of course, is that eternal conscious torment has been the traditional view for most of history. But I want to just for a moment just pause on that hell is avoidable. Because remember, the only reason hell exists is because a choice is given. C.S. Lewis, I want to you know, end with him. Because he, we started with him and we're going to end with him. He says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to who God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. If you cast your mind back to the first week and we looked at the idea of origins, actually the third week when we talked about the fall, in the third week, God gave man a choice. Allow him to continue to be the Lord of our lives or become your own Lord by eating the fruit so that you can know good and evil. Knowing that we would choose, knowing that mankind or that, that Adam would choose to eat the fruit. A choice was given. But then God also knew in his wisdom that he would have to send his son and that he would make a way for all to be reconciled. But the choice is still given. Each person is still given the choice. Will you accept me as your Lord and Saviour? Or do you want to continue to be your own Lord? So at the end of times, that is the question. Anyone who would come and say, God, I give myself to you. I recognize your goodness. I recognize who you are. I recognize who you are to me. I recognize what you did through Jesus on the cross. I give my life to you. They will experience the eternal blessing of being in the presence of God. And for those who would get to the end of time and say, no, I still want to be in charge. I still want things. I still want to be the person who chooses good and evil. I still want to be the person who's in charge of my life. I won't cede lordship to you. They get what they're asked for. It's just now permanent. Whether that's eternal conscious torment or whether that's annihilationism, and both of them are challenging choice is there. 
all who want life will be given life. But life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Come back in two weeks. We're going to have a slightly peppier talk in two weeks. So next week is not uh, a normal church service. We're going to do some fun together uh, because there's a few different things. It's a fifth Sunday and we have challenge with our rosters to do fifth Sundays and just some other realities. So we're actually going to have some fun together next week. So please still come. Don't skip church just because it's not church. And then after that, we're going to talk about the alternative because there is an alternative and it's an amazing alternative and it's an alternative that we should want everyone we know to be a part of and so please come back in two weeks time Uh, we will tackle heaven what is heaven and what does an eternity with God look like love to have you with us then Uh, so I'm just going to pray uh, and then Kelsey's going to come forward and lead us in a final song. Our soup is currently arriving, so that's really good timing. We can enjoy that shortly. Uh, but let me just pray. Father, there is probably no more difficult idea in the Bible than the idea of hell. I pray you would help each of us this day as we reflect on what this topic is, as we reflect on what your word says, as we reflect on what it means, I pray first that you would remind us of your son and just what you've done for us. And that you would then hold us and help us as we wrestle with what the scripture teaches. It does not sit comfortably. There is nothing joyous about hell. There is no feeling comfortable about its reality. So Lord, I pray that you do sit with us and that you walk with us and you journey with us and you help us to see things through your eyes. But most of all, we thank you that you made a way that all may come to you if they so choose. We pray for our friends, we pray for our family, we pray for our our loved ones, our neighbours, for those who we see during the week. We pray that you would help us lead them to know you and to receive what is done by those who accept Jesus as their Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name.